Good morning. It's good to see you all here today. If you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn. You know where we are. We've been studying through the book of Acts. If you're visiting with us, that's a little introduction. We're studying through the book of Acts. And so we find ourselves in chapter 4. We've been there for a couple of weeks looking at this interrogation that's happening in the Sanhedrin with Peter and John. And they are there because of this healing of a lame man at the beautiful gate there right outside the temple. It's caused a commotion. Many people have never seen things like this before. Peter took the opportunity to address the crowd, to preach this incredible message about the conviction of Jesus being resurrected from the dead. And, um, and now they find themselves in this position of being arrested because of all the commotion. And these leaders want to find out what exactly is going on here. So because it was late in the day, and the Sanhedrin is this group of people who come together, um, they are the ones that are basically the overseers. I don't know if you know much about the Sanhedrin, but just to give you a little background, Sanhedrin's not in the Bible in the sense of the law of Moses. It doesn't make for uh, the place of a, a governing body like that. It actually came into place um, after... Rome comes in, and Rome is actually the ones who are in charge, but Rome has this same approach as Alexander the Great, which kind of influenced a lot of, of, of world uh, regimes at that time, which was, hey, when you take over a group of people, it's really hard to like go there and like oversee everything. So when you take them over, just let them rule themselves, and then you just oversee that, and you make sure they pay taxes, and the happier they are in their place, the easier it is to keep control of them. So the Sanhedrin is kind of like a buffer, if you will, between Rome and Israel. So the Sanhedrin would oversee the law of Israel and make sure that people were still following those laws. But they were also there to make sure there were no uprisings. Because with messianic tendencies in your scriptures and in your belief system, there's always this tendency of an uprising, of the zealots to become very agitated and then to lash out towards those who are seen as the oppressors. So the Sanhedrin was there to pacify Rome and to pacify the people, if you will. So whenever they start hearing this language of a Messiah who rose from the dead, um, they're always going to get nervous. So they put John and Peter in jail, uh, at least custody. We don't know what kind of jail it was exactly. It's probably a place there in the temple because it seems like they reside the very next day. Talk about this. Why did they put them in jail? Because it does tell us it was the third hour of the day. And we know that the Sanhedrin doesn't meet until after that because that's the last prayer hour in the temple. So the Sanhedrin dismisses right before the last prayer hour of the temple, and then they reconvene the next day. So after all this commotion happened, remember this was the third hour. It was the last hour of prayer of the day when all of this happened and when Peter had that opportunity. So the Sanhedrin wasn't going to meet again until the next day. And to make sure that these two guys didn't get away, they somehow kept them in custody. Now, the, blind, the, the lame man who was also there, who was healed, we're not sure, but somehow he shows up the next day too, which calls us into question of, did they detain him as well, or did he just voluntarily come back the next day? I'm not sure, but I wouldn't put it past these guys that they actually locked up a man who had been healed and exactly what his problem was or what he was guilty of. I'm not sure, but he does show up there the next day. So where we are in our scripture, we are in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, and this picks up with that story because now Peter is addressing the Sanhedrin. He has been talking to them, and he's been um, speaking to them about what he was preaching and why he was preaching and how this man was healed, and he calls into question, like, why are you even have me here? Am I here because of a kind deed done towards a lame man? 
And then what happens is you see the tables being turned. Uh, Those who are accusing become the accused because Peter says, you're the one that killed Jesus. And then those who are being accused become the accusers. The tables are turned here. And so we pick up with this, and this is really the response of the Sanhedrin to what they thought was going to be a defense from Peter and John, but it turned out to be a sermon from Peter and John instead. So we pick up in verse 13. It says, now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge for we cannot speak of what we have. We can cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Now, the reason that's important is because it tells us that this guy had been in this condition from childhood. So he had been there begging for a long period of time. There's no denying this miracle. Everyone in the temple who was familiar was going to the temple. The habits of Jerusalem, who would have daily probably come to this temple area, had seen this man. Many of them had contributed to his condition. And now to see this man jumping, leaping, praising God, they saw this as a sign from God. They saw this as something only God could do. Therefore, the religious leaders find themselves in in a bit of a situation here. Now, we are told of this boldness in verse 13. This boldness is what the apostles displayed here during this interrogation process. This is something new for them. And this is not the boldness that we remember them as disciples in the gospel of Luke. But Luke here says, after the giving of the Holy Spirit, there is a boldness that comes upon these people. And we know this is an ability for them to say things and do things that they were incapable of doing beforehand. And I think that begs the question of us. How much of your life is unexplainable outside the power of the Holy Spirit. Think about that for a moment, and I want you to just answer that internally. How much of your life is unexplainable outside the power of the Holy Spirit? We should all have testimony in our life of things that have happened to us that we cannot explain except that it's the Holy Spirit working within us. It may be a situation that you show up in and you didn't even anticipate this, but you come across a situation and there's a person who you've just gone through this tragedy in your life or this difficult path, and then all of a sudden this person is dealing with the same thing and you're able to share that difficulty. That, that's the Spirit of God working. You didn't orchestrate that. You didn't go looking for someone who was walking through the same thing. That's the Spirit of God. 
Uh, it could even be as dramatic as a healing. You pray for a healing for someone. All the doctors have said, no, there's no hope for this. And yet you pray and you call others to pray. And there's this dramatic turnaround. That, that's unexplainable outside the power of God. Every one of us should have testimonies of this. Why? Because the same Holy Spirit lives in us that were in these apostles who were doing these things in this first day and time. And people say, well, you know, that was a different day and time. They didn't have a New Testament. The Holy Spirit was giving them those miraculous signs to kind of show God's favor on that. And I get all that. I, I do understand that it was a powerful time. It was a much different time. But that doesn't discount the fact that same Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And these same promises that were made to them were made to us as believers as well. That God wants to demonstrate his great love, his great power. He wants to demonstrate that he is this merciful God who will extend forgiveness to anyone who will repent and recognize and name the name of Jesus and, and come under the authority of Jesus. So these have to, number one, this has to be our message as well, but it also needs to be our testimony. I think it needs to be the testimony of our church. I think we, the history of our church, it needs to be something that we can't explain through human terms. In other words, what I mean is, if we can just say, well, this is how we did it. Well, you know, we built a building, or we started a ministry, or we did whatever it was. And so we went for so much time, and we asked people to give this much money. And, both, and, and look what God did. Well, I mean, you could say, yes, God did that because God is the one who gives all good gifts. But there's also a plan that was a business plan that we wrote up that you can factor in and figure out in your own head. At some point in time, there needs to be something that is so dramatic, that is so powerful, that is unexplainable in human terms. That's when you know God has stepped into the situation and he has taken control and he has demonstrated his presence, his favor, his goodness, his provision. And I think that's a beautiful testimony, not only of the church, but for us individually as well. Verse 13 goes on to state that it was known that these were uneducated and common men. And yet, these uneducated common men left the educated, elite men of the Sanhedrin speechless. And that's the dramatic favor that you see there. I mean, how can you explain this other than God? How can you explain this other than the power of the Holy Spirit? This is not the way this situation should have turned out. This is the most educated of all of them. These are the elite of their day and time. And yet, these uneducated come in, lecture them, and they are left speechless. Literally, the text says, they had nothing to say. Think again about how direct and bold Peter's words were here. Look at verse 10. Let it be known to all of you. This is his, when he was speaking to them as a group before they were arrested and put in jail that night or after they were arrested. This was his address once they did come back and convene that next morning. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that... That was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Think of the boldness of what Peter is speaking there. 
He's addressing the Jewish intelligentsia, the highest of the high in that day and time. And he says, you are the ones who are the murderers. You are the ones who killed Jesus. And then he speaks to them. These are the religious elite. These are the ones that point the way to God. And they say to them, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. Can you imagine all that was going on in that room in that moment? First of all, resurrection, the Sadducees' minds are blown, right? They don't believe in resurrection at all. Oh my gosh, they're talking this resurrection. Now, why did the Sadducees not believe in resurrection? Well, they only believe in the first five books of the Bible anyway. They only believe in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They only believe in the law of Moses. They don't believe in any of the rest of the Old Testament. They hold to that. And there really is no strong picture of resurrection in there. So they dismiss that whole thing. The other thing is the Sadducees are the more liberal of the two groups. They are the ones who are more, um, hey, Rome is a good thing for us, and all we got to do is just kind of appease them, and they'll kind of let us do our own thing so we can keep going through the rituals and the ceremony, but let's just make sure that we keep them pacified as well. And so they were kind of a connection with Rome, and they were trying to make sure Rome was satisfied so that they could keep their comfy positions in leadership over the rest of the culture of that day and time. So they didn't want to hear anything about resurrection being preached. Why? Because that stirs people up. That, that has messianic tones to it, and that's going to cause problems in the long run. And then they end it with salvation can be found in no other name but the name of Jesus. Wow. I mean, think about how that would have hit those religious leaders. The man that they crucified now has resurrected from the dead. Whether they believe he actually resurrected from the dead or not, in their minds, this same problem has come back from the dead, no matter what they believed about Jesus. Here's the same problem that we were dealing with before, and now there's people who are performing miracles, who are speaking of resurrection, and this is leading to insurrection in their minds. Think of the boldness that Peter and John are speaking with here, considering especially who they're speaking to. I mean, can you imagine how you and I would be so nervous to come before Congress or to come before you know, some kind of presidential uh, committee that was overseeing something that we were doing here at Mars Hill? And they wanted to call that into question. And so we go speak before the intelligentsia, if you can even use that for, towards politicians of our day and time. But they're the ones that are the leaders, and they're the ones that are the overseers. They're the ones that have all the power. And so we're called before them to give an account of what it is that we have been doing. And, and you would expect in that moment we would have... Like, like sweaty palms. You'd expect in that moment that we would have the script that we want to stick to, make sure that we don't say anything wrong. We would make sure in that moment, maybe we, we designated everyone and respected who they were and called them by their designated titles. We don't see any of that with Peter and John. We don't see disrespect in the sense of them calling them names, but they speak boldly and proclaim exactly what's going on, and they state it unequivocally and unashamedly. Look at verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition, literally speechless. Peter had spoken. The Sanhedrin had witnessed all the facts before them. Now it was time to convene. First, these accused, uneducated men, they leave the educated authority with no rebuttal. They don't have anything to say. 
they had obviously been with Jesus. Now, I think that's a connection there. Number one, what they're saying by that statement, what Dr. Luke is telling us when he records this, is he's saying, do you remember all those times in the Gospels that I wrote about where Jesus was confronted by the religious leaders and they would ask him a question and then he would just return it and to the point they couldn't even answer him? They were always trying to trap him with their questions and he would always turn the tables on them. And so what he's saying there is, isn't this interesting that now these disciples who couldn't get it before, now all of a sudden seem to embody the same ability to trap their trappers with their own questions. They've been with Jesus. Why have they been with Jesus? They've been with Jesus because they seem to be doing the same things that he was doing. They're healing people. Jesus was always healing people. They're being attacked by the religious people. Now they're being attacked by the religious people. Jesus was persecuted. Now they're going to be persecuted. And Jesus was always offering the truth unequivocally and an invitation to respond to that truth that always leaves his accusers speechless. These guys have been with Jesus. No doubt. We've seen this before. You're probably even familiar in their minds. Think about the fact that Jesus' trial was not that long ago. I mean, we're talking 50 days ago. They were just in the same situation with Jesus. And they were talking to him. And they couldn't find a reason to convict him. And ultimately, they give him to Pilate and say, crucify him. Why? I can't find anything wrong with him. And then they send him to Herod. And Herod goes, he's not my problem. He's your problem. And ultimately, Pilate goes, hey, if you want him dead... I'm washing my hands of this, but I don't find anything wrong with this man. So this man who was not found guilty of anything by any group is now murdered. Why? The only thing you find of that is that's the same thing that happened to the Passover lamb every Passover. The point is the Passover lamb wasn't guilty. He took on the guilt of everyone else. And so therefore Jesus was proclaimed innocent before he's killed, the same thing that happens with the Passover lamb. Again, unexplainable from human terms that you would convict and kill an innocent man, but completely explainable if you look at how God had preordained all of this from the very beginning. Again, what is it about these guys that hits them? They've been with Jesus. Finally, the the other bit of evidence that was very hard to overlook was a man who was standing next to them who had been lame for over 40 years, and he's standing there whole and healed. I I like the way Luke says it. And and they're standing with them. He uses the word standing. Not with them, standing with them. And you know what? Probably the whole night that guy was standing. You know, they probably sat down in that cell and they were praying and stuff. They were like, you want to sit down and pray with us? Because, man, I've been sitting for 40 years. I ain't sitting down anytime soon. I'm going to stand up. I'm going to use this. I'm enjoying standing up. And there Luke tells us he was standing there with them, whole, complete, healed. I think there's another picture there because before we've seen people who are healed who are kind of standing with the religious leaders. In other words, they got caught up in all of this, this drama, and they didn't know where they were in this whole thing. And so they were called, and they said, who was it that healed you? And they were like, well, this guy, what did he tell you to do? Well, he told me to do this. And so they were kind of confused. This guy doesn't seem confused at all. He is standing with Peter and John. He is standing, number one, he's whole and he's healed. Number two, he has come to that side. He knows and he has proclaimed, we are told in the text, that he believed in Jesus, and because of his faith in Jesus, he was found whole, 
What a beautiful picture. So as they surveyed the scene, it was very hard for them to come up with how charges could be leveled against these apostles. And as surprised as the Sanhedrin were, we should not be. Why? Because Jesus told them that this was going to happen. Luke actually recorded it in his own gospel. Look at Luke chapter 21, verse 15. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. That was Jesus speaking to his disciples in the gospel of Luke, telling them, hey, you're going to one day stand against these same guys. But don't worry about it. I'm going to put in your mouth a wisdom and the words that you need that you will stand firmly and you will stand boldly and they will not be able to withstand you and they will not be able to contradict you. And such was the case here. The tables had been turned. The uneducated have lectured the educated. The marginalized have spoken and the power and authority now sit in silence. Notice that it was evident that they had been with Jesus. The question, I think here, of application is very clear. What about you? What about me? Is it evident to others that we have been with Jesus? Is it evident to our spouse? Is it evident to our kids that we have been with Jesus? Do they see the same characteristics? Do they see our desire for restoration and wholeness in relationships and health, and whether it's a mental health or whether it's an emotional health or whether it's a physical health? What is our desire? What do we want to see in our community? Do we want to see wholeness or do we want to see division? What do we want to see in our families? Do we want to see wholeness or do we want to see division? Have they been able to detect that you've been with Jesus? Because when you've been with Jesus, you're going to have a lot of the same character that Jesus has. You're going to have a desire for truth, unashamedly truth. This is true. This is the truth, and I'll lay it before you. But yet, there is this picture of grace as well, isn't there? Because they offer to these guys who, for all intents and purposes, are their enemies. I mean, think about this. This is just 50 days ago that they killed their Lord and their Savior. And now they've been arrested and spent a night in jail. And yet, even in their address, they told them that if they wanted to experience eternal life and the forgiveness of sins, it was available to them in Jesus. That's grace. Truth balanced with grace and love. There's one word that jumps out at us from this passage, and the word seems to be the theme here, and that is boldness. When you think of Peter's words and, and who it is that he's addressing here, there's really no other way to put it but to use a word like bold. Are you and I, the church as a whole, are, are we still bold today? Do we live with that same kind of boldness? And again, th this is just a, a question for reflection. I don't mean it to be con you know, condemning, condemning in any way, form or fashion. I'm not, I'm not insinuating that you're not bold or the church isn't bold, but it's more of a reflection. Do, do we exhibit boldness in the way that we live our lives and the way that we follow after Jesus? Are you bold in the things that you stand for? Are you bold in your convictions about what is right and what is wrong? 
Are you bold in your testimony to those who are lost? Are you bold in your testimony to those who are saved? Because the scripture tells us we're supposed to be preaching the gospel to everyone, not, not just the lost people, but we're supposed to be proclaiming the gospel to each other to constantly remind ourselves of its beauty and its foundational nature to our whole life and existence. I'm always disheartened, as probably many of you are, when you hear of another preacher or another Christian celebrity capitulate to this fallen culture. We hear, it seems like, more and more of these stories about one who is deconstructing their faith. Now, a lot of times what makes me the most angry is these are people who've made their living off of Christians. They've made their living selling songs to them or selling books to them. And, and they've, they've even like highlighted these very extreme views of certain things. And, and they're like, everybody should be doing this. And then they turn around and take that celebrity nature and that wealth. And they're like, well, I'm rethinking these things. Well, have you thought about giving all that money back too? Have you rethought that? No, no, no. They don't rethink that. No. They're not so convicted that they want to separate from everything that they've benefited from. They just want to step away. And why is it that they really want to step away? I think I am coming across kind of judgingly, but I think that you hear my heart and my frustration in this. It's because not so much that they're really rethinking the things they believe, because the things they believe are not popular anymore. It's because it's hard to continue doing what they do in the avenues that they're doing it in and to stand for the things that they used to stand for because it's not popular in our culture anymore. And so the question becomes, how do I balance truth and love, conviction and boldness? There really is a lack of boldness today, at least the kind of boldness that we find in this passage demonstrated by these apostles. Peter proclaimed the unadulterated gospel boldly. He didn't water it down. He didn't sugarcoat it. He didn't mix words together. He proclaimed it boldly. And in our day, it seems that the gospel has been watered down quite a bit. We try to make it palatable to our culture. We try to befriend them and say, well, Jesus wasn't so much this, or the church isn't so much that. And, and believe me, the church isn't perfect at all. And so there are some things that we need to repent of. But the truth is, no matter how good or bad the church is, it doesn't change the truth of the gospel. And you can't change the gospel just because the church has been bad for a, a time. No, you have to proclaim the truth of the gospel unadulterated and add no apologies for the gospel whatsoever. We may need to add apologies for the church in the way that we've acted and the way we've, we've been from years past, maybe even currently. But we never offer an apology for the gospel. Think about Peter's message for a second. He was consistent, wasn't he? I mean, this is the same message, just a different venue. If you go back to what they proclaimed at Pentecost, same message. You go back to what they proclaimed there in the temple after the healing of the beggar, same message. And now you go to the Sanhedrin where they're speaking to the Jewish intelligentsia, same message. He was consistent with his message. He didn't change it according to who he was. He spoke it boldly. And that leads me to the second thing. He was bold. This was not a popular message to preach. This was not something that was going to get him accolades. This was not something that was going to get them in a good position in their society. No, they were going to endure more persecution from this point forward, which we're going to see in these coming chapters. It gets worse and worse and worse, and they, they become even more bold under that persecution. Number three, he was honest. 
He was not trying to spare anyone's feelings. He was not trying to sugarcoat the fact that they were guilty of killing Jesus, that they were the ones who had led the people to do this, that they did this even against Pilate who said, hey, he's an innocent man. I'm ready to release him. No, you demanded that he be put to death. They were honest about the situation. But the fourth one I think is even more important, which is he was gracious. Maybe not more important, but just as important. He was gracious. How was he gracious? He pointed them, who many would perceive as an enemy, to the way of salvation. Peter made a point to obey God and to obey God only. Look at the next verse, verse 15. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Now, this was, this, what, what followed here is a standard operating procedure for the Sanhedrin. The way they always did things was they would bring in the accused, they would level their accusations against them, they would allow them to respond, then they would convene, and they would talk about it in their group. Now, why would they do this? Well, part of the reason they would do this is because the Sanhedrin was made up of two different groups of people who hated each other, just like our Congress and our senators, okay? And it is. And so they have to come together and they talk about things because they're not on the same page. Now, this was a group that was kind of uniform. They all believed the same things and embraced the same ideals. It would be fine. They could probably stand right there and look at each other and go, yep, 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 yep. Hey, you're guilty. But the problem was you had the Pharisees that are a part of the Sanhedrin who do believe in a resurrection. And you have the Sadducees who really have the power. But yet, if they step out there and boldly proclaim this, the Pharisees are going to be like, wait a minute. Are you saying there's no such thing as resurrection? We firmly believe this. And they have the power of the people. So they have to convene and they have to argue through these things to say, what are we going to say? Are we going to say there's no such thing as a resurrection? And the Pharisees said, absolutely not. We're not going to say that. We don't stand with you in that. And then they're like, well, what do we say about this? And like, we're not saying that because that's going to mess up Rome. That's going to make Rome mad. So the Sadducees were not on board with that. And so as they talked about this and talked about this and talked about this, they struggled to come up with any allegations that were going to stick that they could actually agree upon. So the issues that they had brought up even probably became a source of debate amongst themselves. And, and who could argue with the fact that this healed man who was standing right there next to them was a guy who's been lame beggar in the temple for the last 40 years. So what do you do when you feel threatened? You threaten back. And that's exactly what happened. They ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore. And let's see how that goes over. Verse 18. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. What did Peter do there? He turned the tables again. Where it is they are the authority and they are the accused, they are the ones making the judgment, they are the ones being judged, they turned the tables and said, nope, you are our equal and God is our judge. So let's let God determine who is right or wrong. Let's let God demonstrate who he has favor upon and who he does not. It's interesting here that it seems like the charges have actually changed as well. 
Think about this. The original accusation was to the message itself. The Sadducees didn't like the fact they were talking about resurrection. They didn't like the fact they were talking about these messianic titles and quoting these messianic passages from Scripture and saying, you know what, this is Jesus. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus did. And so they were like, we don't like this resurrection. We want to talk to you about this. And then they asked him about that, and that's the way the questioning actually started. But now notice that the declaration or the charge to them was, don't speak in this name anymore. The name wasn't even brought up in the beginning. It was just the content of their message. Now it's about the name of Jesus. This is the best that they could come up with. And you know what? This creates a precedent for the rest of the book of Acts. I think this was strategic on their part, and this is why. Hear me out. They said, we're never going to come to an agreement on what should be said or what shouldn't be said. But I think there's one thing that we can agree upon. We do not want this to get out that Jesus is this Messiah that's been promised. Whether you believe in resurrection or we don't, I think the one thing we agree on is we do not want this Jesus to be hailed as any kind of king, as any kind of of religious leader, as anyone who could be followed or anyone who could be trusted for salvation. Therefore, one thing we can agree on is to say to them, you are not allowed to speak in this name again because if they continue to speak in this name, Now we have precedence and agreement to arrest them and to punish them. And so that's what they came up with. So the response of the apostles was as bold as their preaching and their statements before the Sanhedrin. You be the judge over yourselves. Is it right to obey man or God? Now, there's something else here that's pretty amazing. Because here is something that the Pharisees had been known for teaching. And that was, whenever what God calls you to do disagrees with Rome, you do what God told you to do. Because Rome is the oppressor. You know, as as much as you can get along with Rome, great. But whenever Rome tells you to do something that goes against what Yahweh has told us to do, you disobey Rome and you obey Yahweh. Peter basically takes their teaching that they've been given for so long and throws it back in their face and says, hey... What I would say is this, whenever you command me to do something that's in favor of what God has asked me to do, I'm going to do it. But if there's ever a conflict between what God has called me to do and what man has called me to do, I'm going to disobey man and I'm going to obey God. They go on, verse 20, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Again, it's the idea of witnesses, which is so strong through here at the beginning of Acts. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. So they wanted to punish them. They threatened them more. Do not speak in this name. Do not speak in this name. Because of the people, they were afraid to punish them, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. I don't want you to miss the beauty and the clarity of verse 20. You will naturally speak of things that you are passionate about. That's what he proclaims there in verse 20. That truth. You will naturally speak of the things that you are passionate about. My question to you is this. What are you passionate about? The sad reality is if you were to examine our speech, we're passionate about fashion 
or we're passionate about a sports team or passionate about our kids or passionate about our jobs or whatever our elected uh, source of study is or the schools that we went to. We may be very passionate about uh, our, our, our extracurricular activities, our hobbies, maybe even good things that we do, our volunteerism. We are very passionate about whatever those things are. And so whenever you're at a party and you're starting to talk to people, you know that nervousness that you feel when you go to a place and you don't really know everybody and you're just kind of like, you know, whatever, and, and, and you hear somebody talking and all of a sudden they say something that you're interested in, that's where you gravitate to because you're like, I can have that conversation and you can jump in there and you can begin to talk and before long you're overriding the whole conversation and people are listening to you because you're so passionate about what you talk about. Here's the truth. You talk about the things that you're passionate about. You can't help but do it. Are you passionate about Jesus? It should not be forced. It should be natural. It should not be a burden. It should be a joy. It should not be done with resentment. It should be done with a great attitude and a joyful heart. You see, the boldness of the apostles here is ironically paired with the fear of the council. Do you see that? They were bold and afraid of nothing, and these people who are in authority are afraid of the people because they're always wondering, what will people think of us? Will people continue to follow us? Will people continue to like us? And in a way, I think we can make that same application to ourselves. Are we more concerned about what people think than what God thinks? Are we more concerned about the opinions people have of us rather than the opinion that God has of us? There was the lame man who had been in that condition for over 40 years, and he is standing there, standing there, not as an eyewitness to the event. He's standing there as an exhibit A. You and I, if we have a testimony of Jesus, we are exhibit A. And the thing that you should be more passionate about than anything else is how God changed the direction of your life. And I hope that that's something that you and I can grow so passionate about. That, that whenever, not, not, not that we're just like interjecting it in ways that's so uncomfortable and awkward, but whenever we have that opportunity, that we're always looking for it. We're looking for that door to open so that we can stand in and begin to tell a little bit of our testimony, a little bit of what we're passionate about. That we're always thinking that, I hope this conversation goes in this way so that I can share my testimony with this person. I can share with them what God has done in my life and hopes that they would hear and respond and know and be transformed. See, I think that um, one thing that we can tell from this passage is that Jesus' trial had had an indelible impact on the Sanhedrin. So much so that this encounter with Jesus' apostles reminded them of that fateful night. As Peter and John spoke, they couldn't help but recognize the similarities between those two events. What Jesus said, what they said, and they came to this conclusion, these men had been with Jesus. But they didn't have it exactly right. The truth is, Jesus had these men. He had indwelt them through the power of his Holy Spirit. This was still Jesus speaking, and this was still Jesus acting just through the apostles. Paul says the same thing about all of us. Look at this passage from Romans chapter 8, verse 9 and 10. You, however 
are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Paul says the same Spirit that indwelt the apostles indwells you if you are in Christ. And so therefore that same power, that same richness, that same passion dwells inside of you. So that means that if we are filled with the Spirit of God, we will also promote Christ, just as Peter and John did, because that's what the Spirit does. The Spirit does not promote the Spirit. The Spirit promotes Jesus. You see it over and over and over and over again in the Gospels. The Spirit is never there to promote the Spirit. He's there to point people to Jesus because there is no other name given among men whereby We must be saved. Christ, just as Peter and John did, will be compelled through us to speak the truth to a lost and dying world. And I want you to know this is also a daily surrender. And this is a daily fellowship. And what is the secret formula to steer our passions in the right direction? Well, number one, let me just tell you, it's not a secret. (laughs) And number two, let me just share with you what it is. We've already seen it in the book of Acts. Number one, prayer. We're people of prayer. We saw that's what they were doing from the very beginning. I guarantee you that's what they were doing in jail that night. They were people of prayer. Number two, they were the people of the word. They had spent a lot of time with Jesus over 40 days, and Jesus was sharing them how he was the revelation in the Old Testament. He was the fulfillment of all those passages. They had spent time, Peter, every time he addresses people, he goes back to the Word, and he points back to the Scriptures, and he keeps pointing them back to that direction and showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of that. They were a people of the Word. So they were people of prayer, they were people of the Word, and they were a people of people. They cared about others. We've already seen how they cared about each other so much they were taking care of needs. And now they have this compassion for those who've been marginalized and on the outside. And Peter is compelled to move. Is it because Peter all of a sudden has compassion? It's because the Spirit has always had compassion. And through Peter moves for this healing purpose and this miracle in this man's life. These are the things that allow us to benefit from all that is ours in Christ for the benefit of those who are not yet in Christ. Do you see both of those? Don't miss both elements because they're important. First is that these are the things, this this idea of prayer and scripture and people and community, uh, these are the things that allow us to benefit from everything that's ours in Christ. But the reason we are allowed to benefit from these things is because we are to be a benefit for those who are not yet in Christ. So our prayers should be motivated towards the loss as much as it is on our own life. The reading of Scripture should be so that we are prepared to give an account for the things that we believe to the loss as much as it is for us to know what Scripture teaches. And community, the reason we exist as a church, is to benefit those who are not yet a part of our community. These are the things that should be the foundation of why we come together and why we believe what we believe. Two weeks ago, I was here. And I asked you, hey, pray this prayer with me. Ask God for an opportunity to share your faith with someone this week. Now, again, I'm not going to open up, have an open mic or anything where you come up and share that. But I just want to remind you of that, of two things. Number one, did that thought completely leave your mind once you left there and you hadn't thought about it again in two weeks? If so, 
what has so cluttered your mind that that wasn't a passion of yours, that that wasn't at the forefront of your mind, that that, was, that challenge wasn't something you were just like, yes, I want to see that, I want to do Life may have become too busy for you, too chaotic. And so God and the Holy Spirit is just kind of pushed to the corners of our lives because so many of these things that are not important, they're just urgent, have kind of come to the front. But if you didn't, I'm going to give you another chance because there's always grace. Right now, first of all, I just want you to say, Lord, show me an opportunity to share my faith this week. It could be a neighbor, it could be a coworker, it could be a family member, I don't know. It could be a stranger. Just ask God. Give me an opportunity. You don't have to share the gospel full force, you know, like lay it all out. I'm just telling you, give an opportunity for you to share what God's done in your life. You say, well, what if they say it's not legit? They can't argue with you. That's your experience. That's that's the best thing about it. They can't say, that didn't happen to you. Yes, it did. I'm me. This is me. This is what I'm telling you. At the very least, ask God for the opportunity to share with someone what God has done for you. Let's pray. God, thank you for a word that reminds us of the beauty of the cross. Lord, I pray that in the name of Jesus that you would help us to see the truth of this encounter that we witness here in the book of Acts. And not just to sit there and be amazed at the transformation of the disciples, but also to know that it is incumbent upon us to experience that same transformation. For us to know the beauty of being made whole in Christ the beauty of how faith can unlock so much that the human heart is looking for. And Lord, how the lost need to hear this message. Lord, may we be a people, may we be the church that speaks this truth, not only to each other and to ourselves, but to a community around us. Lord, give us the opportunity to share this great story with those around us in faith. We ask this in the name that's above every name, Jesus. Amen.